The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you're unable to stand, join us now in lifting your hearts. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning as you walked outside to that beautiful Carolina blue sky, looked up. For those of you who are new around here, I'm a big North Carolina fan, and there was a basketball game last night. And I, uh, again, by matter of conscience for me, uh, I go to bed at 9 something, 9.30 on Saturday nights, so I got all these texts, and so I didn't watch the second half. And Lisa came to bed late. She had stayed up, and she whispered. She said, it was a great game. And I thought, I don't know what that means. And she said, the good guys won. And I went, don't do that to me. She goes, I wouldn't. And I said, well, yes, you would, but please don't. She goes, yes, I would, but I'm not. They, uh, your, your Tar Heels won. And uh, I was able to roll back over and go to, back to sleep. But... Um, you know, we get together and we, we celebrate things. And like I said, by matter of conscience, I don't stay up on Saturday nights. That's not to say if you stay up on Saturday night, it's wrong. It's just for me. I realized a long time ago that what I do on Sunday mornings is of infinitely more importance than what those boys do on Saturday night. And I figured for my own heart and mind, I needed to be a little clearer in the mornings uh, coming. And so I was sitting in bed last night thinking about how to appropriate this unbelievable interchange that the Apostle Paul has with the elders at the church at Ephesus. We've been moving through this series on Acts, calling it the, the Church on Mission. I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to Jason Suddeth, one of our elders, for preaching two weeks ago, for Randy Pope for preaching this past uh, Sunday. I hope that you were encouraged and blessed uh, by both of those men and the opening uh, of God's word by them. I know that I was. And this morning, we're stepping back into our series here. And I want you to remember that the church is called on mission, and we have been given that mission because we are the church. You and me, we comprise the church of Jesus Christ. When he uh, was leaving, that is Christ, he said, now you go and do what I came to do. You finish and accomplish the work that I uh, began. And you see, there's, in any organizational life, it begins with a movement, begins with a mission. For Christ, that mission was to seek and save that which was lost. It is to go and to make disciples uh, in all of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And any movement over time institutionalizes, and that's a good thing. And the institution of the movement of Christianity is the church, that the Lord gave the church, and the purpose of an institution is to, it, it exists only to support the mission. It, it exists only to support the movement. Now, the danger that we've seen throughout the course of history uh, is that the church can often then move to a third phase of becoming an establishment. And an establishment exists simply to support itself, that the establishment has to take care of itself only. It's lost the mission, uh, and it's moved past it. And friends, the work of the church, our church, is constantly to fight uh, against being an establishment where we do everything to make sure and to propagate Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, to make sure that we're a great thing and that we're doing great things, and then we, we fail in accomplishing the mission. 
And so the work of the church is constantly to move and to fight and to get away from lots of really, really good things that churches do these days and get back to the thing that the church was called to do, the mission, the movement of the church for which it was established, and that is to seek and save the lost and to go and to make disciples in all of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're going back to that establishment here, uh, that, that movement of the church here, uh, as it began to do that. And in today's passage, we're moving quickly through the entire uh, third missionary journey of Paul. Jason, a couple of weeks ago, began it. Paul was going back out. He went back into Asia Minor. He had come uh, to this big city uh, called Ephesus. Ephesus could be described in its day as a spiritual Disneyland. Uh, It had what was considered one of the great wonders of the world, uh, the the temple to Artemis. Uh, it It was supposed to be one of the most glorious structures ever established. The entire city was designed uh, around it. I mean, imagine Disney World being in the middle. That's what it was. It was a spiritual Disney World. Every bit of industry around it served the spiritual industry, and that was the worship of Artemis. And here comes Christianity, and it begins to turn the city upside down. So much so, as you remember Jason mentioning, that there was a group of people uh, who thought maybe they could use Jesus uh, just as one sort of spiritual, uh, I don't know, just a token They'd throw his name out there and see uh, if that worked, and they realized that uh, the enemy, that is the demonic forces, said, we recognize Jesus, and we recognize Paul, but we don't recognize you, for you are trifling with a name that should never be trifled with, and we'll show you what happens to people who inappropriately use the name of Christ, and it says that this demon-possessed man came upon all seven of them beat the tar out of them, stripped them naked, and sent them out. And great fear gripped the church, you can imagine. Because people were like, I kind of use Jesus as a token. I put his little ichthus on my business card. I put a bumper sticker on my car. I, I flaunt his name. I use him when it, uh, when it helps me. But I don't really follow him. And people got a little scared. And it says they were so upset that they, they brought in all of their magical books and potions and things that they'd been using. Because you see, for a lot of people, they're like, yeah, we love Jesus. And we still kind of like Artemis. We want Jesus, but we want our lifestyle too. We want a foot in the kingdom, but we want the majority of our life in this world. I mean, God, you're not upset by that, right? You're not upset. I was talking with somebody recently. I think I told you this. And we were talking about goals for the year. And he had been giving me his goals for the year. And was asked, I asked, or actually my wife asked, did Jesus make your top ten goals this year? And he goes, well, yeah, Jesus is in the top ten. And I said, be careful. Jesus usually doesn't well, doesn't usually do well being in any position but number one. Because what this young man was saying was, hey, I'd like all these other nine things and some Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Anybody else getting a little uncomfortable uh, in their seat? Because we like all these other things and we want Jesus to be the token, to bless it. 
we, we want to be okay with that. And so Ephesus was turned upside down. It said that they were bringing stuff in that was costly up to 50,000 talents uh, of silver. It was tons of money, so much so that the town leaders and all of the ones who made their money from Artemis and the temple got upset, and they basically caused an uproar so much so that Paul left. Paul had been there upwards of three years establishing the church in Ephesus. He had built a deep and meaningful relationship with the people of Ephesus, training up the leaders of the church, establishing elders. Uh, the words there are where we get the word presbyteros, presbyter. The, the word episcopoi, uh, a, bishop, a bishop was there. It, it was the building up of the church, uh, of saying there's leaders, shepherds, who were placed over in the care uh, of the church there. And Paul left. And now we pick up Paul heading back to Jerusalem. You see, in, in uh, verse 21 of chapter 19, it says that Paul purposed in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, capital S, by the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. Paul knew that he needed to head back to Jerusalem. And so he turned and he said, my missionary journeys are done. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem now. And on his way back, he stopped in this town called Miletus, and from Miletus, he summoned the elders of Ephesus. And he said, I, I want to be with you. I want to say goodbye to you. They were so meaningful to him after spending three years with them that they went and journeyed four days to come down to Miletus and to be with Paul. And what we have in the section of Scripture that we're reading today is the only speech given in Acts two Christians. Every other sermon, every other speech given in Acts uh, is given to those who haven't yet believed. And so we can learn a great deal in this. This was Paul saying to a group of people he deeply loved. So many of you over the years have said to me, I hope I get an opportunity before I die to speak what I want to say to the ones I love most. This was Paul knowing that he would never see these individuals again. And so you can imagine that what he said had great weight. It, was, it had gravity. It had meaning and purpose uh, in it. And Luke, we know, was with him there because in chapter 20, beginning in verse 5, uh, Luke starts to write from the plural singular, we and us. He says, I was with him. He was there with Paul and the elders. And so we're going to look uh, at four things, and then we're going to come to the table this morning. And I'll go ahead and preempt. We're going to do the table a little differently uh, this week, and we're going to invite you to experience it a little more contemplatively uh, this week and in the weeks going forward. So we're going to look, and I'll give you the four things. Uh, don't move away from the clear truth of the gospel. Paul is encouraging Christians to not move away from the clear truth of the gospel. He's saying, always be on your guard. Always be on your guard. Keep loving one another well. Live within that deep community that you have care for one another. And then he ends with finish the course. Finish your course. So the first 
Don't move from the clear truth of the gospel. Or don't deviate from the clear truth of the gospel. Well, that assumes a couple of things. One, that the gospel truth is clear. It can be understood. And that's what Paul uh, teaches here uh, in chapter 20. He begins and he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, testifying both to Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God, this is verse 21, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the summary, the clear summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it involves Two steps. One, repentance towards God the Father and turning in repentance towards Christ and having faith in Christ that he has paid fully for all of our sins, all of our offenses towards the Father, the judge, the offended party. Christ isn't the offended party, by the way. God the Father, the judge, the one who entered into covenantal relationship with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you're new to the church and going, who? Last week, Randy spoke about God works in representative communities. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. That all humanity fell in Adam, and some would go, that's a bad thing. Ah, but the good thing is the covenant that God made was through Abraham, and that all who believed through Abraham and now have faith through Christ, uh, representative. And so in chapter 12, God entered into uh, a covenant. And a covenant basically says this. The greater party, that is God the Father, speaking to the lesser party, that is Abraham, says, if you obey these things, if you do these things, if you follow all of these covenantal rules, then you will be blessed. However, if you break them, then you yourself will be broken. If you break the covenant, you will be split. You will be destroyed. You will be crushed. And God realized in chapter 12, by the way, of Genesis, you need to go read it, that Abraham stood no chance. And so he put Abraham to sleep, and Abraham was asleep, and through a vision he, he saw what took place, that God split bulls and rams explaining and showing blood has to be spilled if you, if you break my covenant. And I know that you will, so therefore I'm going to have to uphold my covenant with my own that he sent in Christ, and it's Christ who moved through. And it was God the Father making a covenant where sleeping Abraham, us, his descendants, unable to do it on our own, he said, listen, you will never be able to get the benefits of this covenant by doing your work. You're too broken, you're too fallen, you're dead in your sins and trespasses, your hearts are hard, you want just a little bit of me and not all of me, and I don't deal well with that kind of stuff, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my own son. And he's going to perfectly obey. He's going to do it right. And then he's going to do this unbelievably incredible thing. He is going to take his perfection and his righteousness, and he is going to offer it to me, the offended judge, on your behalf, the offending party. And so what we have to do in the midst of this is to go, Lord, we messed up. Anybody mess up this week by God's standard or yours? We all mess up on a standard. The beauty of our standard is it changes. Oh, I messed up. Let's just change the standard a little bit. It makes me feel better. God's standard never changes. And so we have to look and go, that's what Paul said. I taught you repentance towards God the Father 
You have to repent. And remember that repentance is a turning away from, but also a turning towards. What do we turn towards? We turn towards Christ. And we see in Christ him going, good, because I've already done it for you. Now, by faith, you receive the very righteousness that I gave my Father in heaven. Now, you, because of my completed work, are considered the very righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing news? So if you're not a follower of Christ today and you're tiptoeing back into church, I want you to hear that the simplicity of the gospel is very much this. Recognize that you have to repent to God Turn towards Christ, accept what he's offering you, recognizing that we lost it all, Christ did it all, and we gain it all. That's really good news. That's really good news. It's funny how a number of people came to me this morning and said, congratulations on the game. Like I did something last night. I was sound asleep. And these boys still won. And I gained the victory. It's so gospel-like. It's beautiful. The enemy was defeated. The good guys win. It was great. No, but that's the gospel, friends. It's that easy. It's that easy. And Paul was saying to us, you need to believe that. If you add anything else in, it destroys it all. If you add just a little bit of your good works... If you want to do the walking with Jesus, it messes it all up. It's Christ alone for our salvation. And Paul says, and I did not shrink from declaring, this is verse 27, from declaring the good news of the gospel, both in word and deed, the entire whole counsel and purpose of God. Paul was like, listen, it's not just this much. It's this much in toto, in totality. And it affects the total sum of your life, not part of it. That's why people were running to the church. They realized there was an old heresy that has come back in recent years, and it began moving through college universities and campuses in the middle part of last century. And it was this heresy that says, can Jesus be my Savior but my, my Lord? And friends, the answer is no. You can't get fire insurance without the king. Jesus says, I am Lord only. It's totality of your life. And some of you are going, how much, how much? All of it, all of it? Is really all of it, all of it? Or is it just part of it? I mean, he's not really wanting to affect my business, right? He's not really wanting to affect my sexual ethic, right? He's not really wanting to affect uh, my political things, right? He's not really trying to affect how I study and how I take my tests in school or how I, how I deal with my parents or how I deal with my children. He's not talking about those things. It's just me and Jesus, right? No. Paul says, I do not shrink from telling you that it's all in. It's all of you. Because it's all of Christ in the middle of it. You see, we tend to compartmentalize the gospel, which leads us not to live it out fully. And we shrink back. That word shrink has with it the idea to wither under intense heat. Paul says, I didn't wither. I didn't wither. And there was some intense heat in Paul's life. He said, I didn't shrink back. I stepped up. I stepped in. I leaned in with great strength. 
And I wonder, as Paul was with the elders there at the end of the passage, says that he knelt down and he prayed. I wondered if the prayer sounded something maybe like this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and to Christ and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul wanted the believers there, the elders who represented the church, to know the fullness of Christ. When I committed my life to the Lord, my parents bought me a Bible, and they highlighted, my mother circled and highlighted that. That was her prayer. Oh, Bill, I pray that you would know the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's when you come alive. So that's not deviating from the truth of the gospel. Then he says, but be on your guard. You go, got it, I got it. He says, be on your guard. He moves down into uh, this section, and he says, be careful. Be careful. Pay careful attention, this is verse 28, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be on your guard. Even in the church, most especially in the church. Friends, you and elders seated within here, you are caregivers of this church. You are the ones stewarding the church, not just me. It is all of us being on guard, being on guard. And isn't it interesting what he says not to be on guard for? He doesn't say worry about Rome. He doesn't say, don't, he doesn't say worry about political powers. He doesn't say worry about the Democrats or worry about the Republicans. He says worry about heresy within the church. From within the church, that the evil one, oh, how tactical he is, that he would come in with his mission statement, if you remember, to kill, steal, and destroy, that he would come in promoting what he began uh, in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's the church, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, that we have an enemy who is prowling about. And Paul even reminded the Ephesians in chapter 6 of this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the the heavenly places. Be on your guard. We don't live in a closed system. 
The Western mentality and the scientific mentality is that we live in a closed system. Friends, we don't. We live in a system, a spiritual system, that has physical as well. But there is a spiritual dynamic, and there is an enemy who is lurking around. And the Lord has given to the church pastors and elders, shepherds and leaders. Therefore, be very, very careful whom you appoint to those positions. If you go look in Timothy and in Titus, when it speaks about overseers, when it speaks uh, about uh, presbyteros, when it speaks about bishops and speaks about these individuals, only a couple of the things listed have to do with skill set. The rest are all about character and knowledge of God. Because those individuals set in the church are the ones who are supposed to discern and to help care for the church. And so what you should be doing as a congregation, by the way, is continuing to pray for the leaders of this church, for spiritual discernment, for protection. When people ask me and they say, Bill, how can I pray for you? My response is always the same. Pray for my holiness. Pray that I would not deviate from Christ in the way that I live or what I believe about him. Because if I do, then you get damaged. And oh, wouldn't Satan love? He loves to take down shepherds. If you want to pray for me and pray for pastors, if you're not from here and you're going back to your church, pray Saturday night. Most intense battles in the homes of ministers and those who work within the church is on Saturday night. Because if he can nullify us on Saturday night, we step in on Sunday morning not feeling like we can do much. And Paul says, always be on your guard. False teachers will influence the church. And friends, he calls them savage wolves. He has no good words for these individuals. Go read his letter to to the Galatian church, which was just up the road, by the way. They all would have read these together. He said, if you hear somebody preaching a different gospel that has deviated from the gospel that I've told you about, may that individual emasculate himself and be cursed and thrown into hell. For there is no other gospel. That's how much Paul cared about the gospel. And what we've watched in the church in the world today is the church has moved off center. We go, yeah, but they still mention Jesus. But which Jesus? If it's any other Jesus but this Jesus, then it's not Jesus. If it's any other gospel but this gospel, then it's not the gospel. And anybody believing in a not Jesus and a not gospel is damned. That's why Paul says, be careful, there's an enemy. And he wants to attack our church. One of my first conversations with the session of this church 10 years ago last month was how to get rid of me. Because I wanted them to know, if I ever move away from center, get rid of me. That's your responsibility. But you've got to know center well enough to know when somebody's not on it. Friends, the message of the gospel within the context of the church is imperative for the mission of the church, which is to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If we get off here, we get off a long way down the road. Always be on your guard. You know the encouragement to the church in Ephesus came in Revelation chapter 2. I'm sure you already jumped there. 
And the angel spoke to the church at Ephesus in the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ah, he said, well done. You knew your doctrine. And you stay true to it. Well done in that. So don't deviate. Don't move away from the truth of the gospel. Always be on your guard. Parents, let me give you a test if you want for your children to see how they're doing. I did this with my own children years ago and was so sadly disappointed. They grew up in my home. They grew up in the church that I helped lead. They went to the Christian school that my church sponsored. And I looked at my sons when they were in middle school, and I said, tell me. And I asked them the EE questions. You may be familiar with those. If you died tonight, where would you go? Oh, Daddy, I would go to heaven. Oh, good. That's awesome. Well, let's say you get to heaven, and God asks you this question. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell them? Why should you get into heaven? And I looked at my wonderful children raised within my wonderful home in the great church where I was part of the leadership and the preaching of the gospel regularly. And they looked at me and said, because we go to church and we're good, There is an enemy of moralism and an enemy of legalism and a movement away from the gospel that can grip your children's hearts, and we are producing little legalists, and we have to be careful, parents. Grandparents, the goal for your children isn't for them to be good. It's for them to love Jesus. Goodness will follow, but pursue their hearts in that. Just a little test. If you want to be so bold at lunch, ask your spouse that question. Ask yourself that question. Then Paul says this, be on your guard. Then he says, keep loving one another well. Keep loving one another well. This is more of an inferred one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Paul, throughout this passage of Scripture, talked about how he had shared life with them. He'd lived among them. He was with them. He didn't take advantage of them. He felt loved by them. But the reason that I put that in there was here was a group of men, possibly even maybe their families had come down, but only the men are mentioned. They come down and they travel four days to see Paul. Sometimes I'm wondering if I want to travel four hours to drive up to Charlotte or four hours to Atlanta. It's just inconvenient. This was four days of walking and possibly having to take a ship across uh, a, a gulf. And they came and they were with Paul. Why? Because Paul invested his life. There was deep community. They loved one another well. They were known. They knew Paul, and Paul knew them. They experienced and were loving one another so well. Church, keep loving one another well. I hear stories when some of you are sick and some of you aren't doing well, how the church has come around you. But, friends, it's hard to do that in the larger context. You need to find smaller communities, a life group, a men's group. If, you don't, if the life groups are full, start one yourself. We'll help you. Just gather together. Start sharing life uh, together and love one another well. And then finally, I'll end here. Paul says, finish the, finish the course. Finish the course. That's what he says. But I do not account my life, verse 24, of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Friends, I want you to hear this. You have received a course. 
You've received a purpose in life. You've received an assignment. You've received an assi- uh, something to do. So many of you are sitting around, I just don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what God has for me. Friends, here's what it is. Live in light of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a young girl from a previous church. She's in her mid to late 20s now, and she's serving the Lord over in the UK, uh, reaching all the immigrants who are coming in from the Middle East and sharing the gospel with them. And I got her email recently, and I wrote her back just to encourage her. I haven't seen her in years, but she had come through a new members class when she was just a teenager, and I had been teaching her, and I said, way to go. You're doing so well. And she said, Pastor McCutcheon, I still remember one thing that you said, and you asked us a question, what's the chief end of man? And she said, I realized at that time I learned the answer, that the chief end of man is to what? Let's say it together if you know it. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. Paul says you have a ministry. You have a purpose. Blessed be the God, this is Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He said, I've given you everything you need. Oh, Bill, I don't know if I have everything. Ephesians seem to say that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus have been given to you. They're yours in Christ. Now go out and live according to that. Therefore, pursue Christ exclusively with your life. Ephesians 4, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of grace. How we live as Christians is our ministry, my friends. Your primary ministry is not the 501c3 that you started. It is not the board that you sit on. It is not any of that. Your primary ministry as a follower of Jesus Christ is your life. Live it as the ministry that those around you would see Christ. And for some, maybe be drawn to him through your life. What we do with our lives matters. We are saved to be to have a purpose. We were saved to accomplish something significant, to glorify God. And some of you are saying, this is really hard. And friends, it is, because you see, following Christ is costly. Not deviating and staying the course, it's costly. It requires humility. It's an assault on your pride. Look at what Paul says. I do not account, verse 24, I do not account my life as of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course the race that I've, ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. Paul did an accounting. He said, I consider my life, it's of no value. It is of no value unless it's in relation to Jesus. The only value that I have in this world comes from my relationship to Jesus Christ. That is a very non-American, non-Western thing, Right? Where do you think your value comes from? It's exposed in most of our lives. Paul was saying, I don't count my life as anything. I recognize that the only value in my life is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I will be graded and judged upon that and that alone as an accounting. And so it requires humility. That's an assault on our pride. It includes difficulties, which is an assault on our life. 
Paul said there was going to be bonds of afflictions awaiting me. It's going to be difficult, but it will be empowered and protected by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 6, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit gives us, it gives us the power. And then the last thing within that, Paul says, don't get distracted. Stay the course. Stay on target. The reason I bring this up, because if you read the last part of Revelation chapter 2, when the Lord comes and he considers the church at Ephesus, he starts with saying, you did really well theologically. You did really well with your theological framework, but what you experienced was mission creep. You got away from what you were really called to do. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, we're called to be on mission, to love one another, to share the gospel. It doesn't matter what else we do. That's what we're called to do. We come to this table today, and I'm so thankful for this table because, you see, Christ, he didn't get distracted. He was offered temptation by the same enemy that we were offered in the wilderness. The enemy came and says, what about power? What about influence? What about your name? And he said, no, I'm going to stay the course. He said, because I'm coming to give my life as a ransom for many. And some of you are sitting here today and you haven't committed your life to Christ. You haven't repented. You haven't looked to the Father and recognized that you've held him in contempt. And you haven't turned to Christ. And so the invitation around this table today is do it today. Do it today. For we have no promise of tomorrow. And for others of you, what you've realized is you've had some mission creep in your life. You've, you want just a little bit of Jesus, but not too much. And so the invitation for you is to come back to this table today and say, Jesus, I want all of you. And what I want you to see is Christ at the head of this table who took bread. And after he had been with his disciples, he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. All of it. Take and eat. And in similar fashion, after the meal, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed, filled with my blood. That covenant that you couldn't keep, I kept. I was split. I was crushed. I was bloodied. So you wouldn't have to be. He said, but the only way to gain all of this is by faith and believing in me. And so I'm going to pray, invite the team to come up, and then I'll explain how we'll take the meal together. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise and thanks that you were the offended one, but you knew that in order to be made right with us, to be made at peace with us, your son had to be crushed. And so we're thankful for that. We're humbled. We're amazed by it. So, Father, now draw us to repentance, which leads us to life. Draw us to this table and to consider the depth and the gravity 
the weight and the joy and the beauty and the song that it is, the intimate kiss of a father to a child that says, I love you so much that I purchased you at a high price. Father, set aside these elements from their common and ordinary use to this, their sacred use today, we pray in Christ's name.